Hi, I'm Bob Ekblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple. Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. Today I want to talk about the earliest beginnings of Jesus' calling of disciples and his ministry priorities according to Matthew's Gospel. You know, we see that Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, his cousin, and then right away he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And, um, and then when he comes out of the wilderness, in verse 12, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, so John, we know, was uh, Jesus' cousin, and he was arrested by Herod and eventually beheaded. So right when he was arrested, it says that Jesus withdrew into Galilee. So that term withdrew is something we've dealt with in past podcasts. It involves like retreating in a way, but it's all very strategic. So he goes into Galilee and, you know, Galilee was a long ways from the capital. It was way up in the northern part of Israel. And yesterday we did a Bible study with our little gathering that meets at Friday afternoons at five in Mount Vernon. And we were there by the river and talking about where would people go to? What would be the equivalent of Galilee where people who maybe were worried about, you know, being arrested, maybe they had warrants or, you know, they were in trouble with the law, where would they go? And first thing people said was Mexico. Um, and uh, But then we got talking about just other places in our county that there's a lot of wilderness areas just, you know, just right east of us in the Cascades. And so we mentioned different places. And and then, um, then we look more specifically at verse 13, kind of where Jesus went exactly. It said, in leaving Nazareth, so apparently he went straight for Nazareth, his hometown, Maybe that's where he felt like he would have some support or he wanted to you know, check in with his family. But then he left and he came and he settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea. And, uh, and so this was sort of the ground zero of Jesus's activities, you know, his home base in a way, um, this town right on the Sea of Galilee. And then it mentions in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Zebulun and Naphtali were... Um, you know, parts were tribes of some of the 12 tribes of Israel. And I did a little research on this just to, just to understand, you know, where these, you know, who these characters were, Zebulun and Naphtali. And I learned that actually um, Zebulun was, um, you know, was the sixth son of Leah, who was uh, Jacob's least favored wife. It was her, you know, her final son. And then she had a daughter, Dinah after that. And so he was the youngest son, I guess, of that lineup, beginning with Reuben. And then Naphtali was actually Rachel. Rachel was unable to conceive, and so she gave Jacob her servant, her maid, Bildah. And he went into her and got her pregnant, and they had two sons, Dan, and then the second son was Naphtali. So so this in some ways, is a marginal character, a marginal tribe. It's the; these are the descendants of the of, of one of two sons of Rachel, who's uh, Jacob's preferred wife's um, maid, you know, servant, whatever. And you know, um, and so then, right after that, Jacob, uh, uh, you know, has um, has relations with his wife Rachel, and she has two sons. Uh, Joseph and Benjamin, and then she dies in childbirth with Benjamin. So, um, anyway, both of these tribes were, 
you know, they weren't in the top sort of uh, echelons of the tribal hierarchy or whatever. They were more marginalized groups, I, I would think. And there they were in Galilee. And we know that that part of Israel was part of the northern tribes that's called Israel that was carried off into exile uh, prior to, you know, the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And so, anyway, that's why, that's kind of the background for this next verse, which is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 9. And that says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, so um, these tribes were, they spanned all the way from, you know, from the Mediterranean. So the northern part of Israel to the west, all the way to the northeastern part of Israel. They were the, the northern areas. And, and so um, anyway, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the, of the non-Jews, because uh, since they were the first to be exiled, um, a lot of the people that came back were, there was a lot of intermarriages and a lot of non-Jews that settled in that area. So this was sort of the marginalized people of Israel where they would settle, even though you'd find them probably everywhere in Israel. So then let's look at verse 16. So um, so anyway, Jesus goes there and, and then it says, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. This is back to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has dawned. And um, this is referring back, as I said, to Isaiah chapter 9. And I'm just going to read that briefly, a section of it, because this is actually quite interesting, this whole passage of Isaiah 9, which is a prophecy of the that's considered a messianic prophecy. So they're described as those who walk in darkness, they will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. And then it goes on and it says, You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoil. Okay, and here's the reasons why they're going to rejoice. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Okay, so wow, this is a very anti-war prophecy, isn't it? It's describing, um, you know, all the, the, the clothing involved in, you know, military battles, you know, being, um, you know, being burnt and, um, and, you know, all of the, um, the yoke of the burden and the staff that's on the shoulders, the oppressor, oppression of the oppressors is going to be destroyed as well. And, um, and then it says, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
Okay, so that is the fuller prophecy that I think is is being evoked, and and the the readers of Matthew, you know, that community who were Jewish um, believers would have known um, that fuller text. And so here we have Jesus then, um, you know, is being presented as as the one who's coming to fulfill that. And so with my gathering yesterday around right alongside the Skagit River, I asked people, well, who are the people that are sitting in darkness? You know, who are the people that are in the land and the shadow of death? You know, where, um, where would they be today? And people were saying, well, you know, just right around us, we were right in this park where a lot of uh, addicts and homeless people passed through. They were walking past us, some of them. And, you know, we were down in an area that is uh, heavily trafficked by fentanyl users and drug dealers and, you know, people that are really in dire circumstances. So other people mentioned, you know, the jail. Uh, people mentioned some of the trap houses, you know, where drugs are done and some communities upriver um, where there's a lot of people who are, you know, sort of outlaws or just uh, escaping, you know, trying to s- stay under the radar of the of the law. And anyway, where might those kinds of places be for you? You know, are you know many people are, are in deep loneliness in our in our culture, aren't they? You know, maybe many of us feel like we're sitting in darkness, and we're in the land of the shadow of death. And so, um, you know, we, we want to read this in a contemplative way, thinking about our own settings. And so um, those of us that are sitting in the darkness or in the land of the shadow of death, um, if we can situate ourselves in this story, what is it that is prophesied that will happen? Well, it says um, those ones will see a great light and upon them a light has dawned. And then right away we have... Um, Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, change your way of thinking, for the kingdom of heaven is is right on the verge of breaking out. So um, anyway, that's that's just beautiful to think about um, Jesus then being um, this agent of light. And, uh, you know, we can't help, I can't help but think of John chapter 1, where Jesus is described as being the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not um, comprehend it, couldn't understand it. And, you know, so this, this light that is um, the light of the world, you know, Jesus himself, um, who John testifies about, the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every person, uh, we know from John chapter 1 that the, that the world did not recognize this light. And those um, who were of his own people did not receive him. But anyway, let's get back to Matthew. That um, How is it that the people that were sitting in darkness then uh, were able to see this great light? How did it dawn upon them? Um, so let's see how this all works out in um, verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, okay, so this light then is walking. It's embodied in the person of Jesus, you know, who we know from the the fuller context of Isaiah 9 is this Messiah. You know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. 
So um, this one is the one who's walking by the Sea of Galilee. So um, where would be the equivalence of the Sea of Galilee for us today? Um, you know, let's see what happens and that'll help us maybe identify those equivalents. So it said, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So right away we see that um, Jesus is taking the initiative as the light, who um, is described as dawning on those who are living in the land of the shadow of death. Okay, so now we have the first people maybe identified who are these fishermen. And I asked um, one of our native guys who was there yesterday, you know, well, who who might be the, the fishermen today? Like, what would this look like? And he said, oh, yeah, I just got this contract to work on the crabbing boats of my tribe. And so I'm going to be starting that out right away. And so, yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, any of us like out there, um, out in the out in the bay and, you know, doing our crabbing, doing our fishing. And um, anyway, so it was a really relevant text that we were reading, considering we were right uh, on the bank of the Skagit River reading this, um, these verses. Anyway, so I asked them, what were these guys doing? Well, they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So what were they looking for? Well, they were looking for fish, um, you know, for food, for money. So um, anyway, then we look and Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And, um, and then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So we talked about this um, and looked at these three categories of net, uh, boat, and father, and noticed together that Jesus didn't tell these uh, fishermen to leave anything. He just says, follow me. And they were the ones that needed to determine on their own what it was that they needed to leave. And we also looked at the question of what these guys were doing. Were they praying? Were they reading their Bibles? Were they crying out to God? You know, when Jesus saw them and called them. And we, we all, um, everyone was kind of amazed, really, that no, there was nothing visibly spiritual that they were doing. They were, they were just um, going about their daily lives, earning a living. And so would that constitute sitting in darkness in the land of the shadow of death? It's just going about our, our daily lives, um, doing our professions, you know, working. Apparently, I think it does for Jesus. And so this doesn't appear to have an elevated view of work which I think a lot of Christians want to uh, talk about the value of work. And maybe we overvalue it um, as something that um, we want to sacralize. We want to, um, you know, we want to, we want to think of it as maybe more important than it actually is because it's what we do instead of seeing it as something that is just a necessity. It's part of the realm of necessity that all of us, um, you know, we need to earn a living in order to pay our bills and to survive and, you know, some of us who've had more of an opportunity for education, who have maybe been able to be more selective about our vocations, we can feel perhaps better about our work um, than someone who has less opportunities and just has to do what they can find. And so anyway, we need to be careful how we think about work 
and um, because um, sometimes it can block us from actually seeing it as the toil and as um, the struggle, you know, the site of struggle that um, that maybe Scripture sees us um, sees it as like the, you know, like in Ecclesiastes, vanity and van- vanity, vanity and striving after the wind is is what you know the um, the writer of Ecclesiastes says concerning just the human condition of just, um, you know, working to survive. Anyway, so Jesus um, comes in as this light that is shining on these people sitting in darkness. And what does he say? He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of people. So I was asking people, so what is Jesus doing here as the light? What's his strategy? And people had a hard time actually answering that question, so I had to ask it a number of different ways. And I ask you, what is Jesus doing as the light um, that's shining on these people sitting in darkness? What, you know, what's his whole approach here? So eventually, we were able to to talk about it as um, well. It involved, you know, going out to where people were and proclaiming, preaching, you know. Um, First, um, it states, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, though that's not what we see Jesus saying to these fishermen. But it's, in contrast, we just see him seeing them and calling them out and to join him and to, he includes them in his mission right away. So what we see is actually the multiplication of, of carriers of light. So um, this movement of the light shining on the dark in the darkness is done through Jesus um, moving from just being a singular uh, actor here, an agent, to now having two others, so there's three of them, and then moving on to having f- two more, so there's five of them. So Jesus goes from one to five, and that, um, but that involves these guys leaving to become uh, students of Jesus, where um, he's going to make them become fishers of people. And once again, um, we ask the question, how was Jesus fishing for these guys? Because he was able to catch all four of them. And so we said, well, he, he goes to where they are. He goes to where we are. He sees us. He calls us to follow him. And he commits himself to equipping us to be able to uh, call others in the same way that he has called us. So then we looked next at this uh, verse 23, just what they did. Okay, like what was the mission that was the alternative to being out there in their boats, um, casting their nets. So verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So wow, right away, um, there's action. And that action involves um, them going with Jesus to experience and listen to him teaching in the gathering places and um, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. So teaching and proclamation and then healing every kind of disease. Wow, every kind of disease. So bipolar disorder, PTSD, you know, um, like uh, different seizures that people might be experiencing, uh, influenza, um, you know, cancer, just anything that we can think of, right? Or influence in that influenza. Um, and then it goes on to, um, to say in verse 24, the news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill 
So it goes beyond the borders of Israel into the, this land of Syria. And uh, people are bringing all who are ill. That's a lot of people, I imagine. Those suffering from various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus invites us today to, um, to become bearers of light with him. And this becomes really clear right in the very next chapter, chapter 5, um, where we have the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, Yesterday, right after I um, was involved with this Bible study, I had um, I was invited by one of my sons to go down to um, to a banyo, which is a a Russian sauna down in a city south of us, and um, I I'd, I'd never been to one of these uh, Russian saunas in the United States, although Gracie and I, when we went to Siberia on three different occasions, we um, you know, I especially got invited almost like every other night by the pastors and, you know, the men of these churches to go to these banos. And so I experienced firsthand, um, you know, a lot of the, just the intensity and the beauty of these, um, of these saunas where, um, you know, you can go in and, uh, and there's this thing called a, a venique, which is a, a bundle of small leafy branches that they harvest um, in the summer. Um, and then they tie together these branches to form something like, kind of like a crude broom. And they soak it um, until it's supple, and then they use it in the steam room to massage the body. And um, it's a, they use it to kind of direct the steam that comes up from, um, you know, from the stove. And, and they use it to waffle and swish, they call it. And so, anyway, first time that I had this done to me... Um, it was this guy who was this mafia guy who was naked with this leather girdle on who, um, I mean, he was, a, he was a pastor and the head of this recovery program. He was covered in tattoos and he was an expert at using these, this kind of this instrument and he was doing it to, you know, he was having all of us lay on the, on the, on the bench of the sauna. Um, and, um, and he came and just began hitting my back with this. And first they would pour hot, water over the rocks and so the steam would rise to the top and then they would use um they would take this um, venik and they would use it to kind of wave the heat down onto my back and my um, back of my head and my legs and and my feet and then he began to just kind of you know kind of pound or whack my 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 feet and swish the um you know kind of move the the steam and the hot air um into my, um, you know, just up and down the back of my body. And then I had to turn over and he did it on my face and on my chest and down my legs. And, and what he says that is it, he was doing was beating the heat into my bones. Okay. And that's what it felt like. It was so intense. So anyway, last night, um, we met these two Ukrainian men who, uh, kind of approached us in the sauna that was mostly Russians, but, we learned that these two guys were Ukraine, two Ukrainian brothers, and one of them um, 
I said, hey, if you want, my brother can, you know, can take the Vinique and, and, and give you guys one of those massages. And, and I was like, oh, I don't think I want to do that. And, uh, but then my son, Isaac, he had it done. And then the guy said, hey, if you want, I'll do it. And I thought, well, okay, I'll just, I'll just go for it. And so what we were doing is going to the sauna, then you take these cold plunges into this uh, cold pool and get all cooled off and then go underneath this really cold shower and then go back in the sauna. And so I'd done that maybe six times. And then, um, then it was my turn to get this treatment. So I experienced it and it was very intense and invigorating. And then I went into the cold pool and, um, and this, and the guy who, who'd, uh, offered this to all of us came and got in the cold pool and we began to talk and he said, um, he asked me what my profession was. And I said, I'm a pastor and a theologian and teacher. And he um, looked kind of shocked and then said, will you pray for me? And I was like, um, yes, like, you know, right now. And he was like, no, um, tonight after you leave. And I said, oh, certainly I'll pray for you. And I, I can right now. But he was like, no, just uh, after when you leave. And, and then we began to talk and, um, you know, he told me how he is Ukrainian and he's married to a Russian and how um, his son, who's six years old, their son has been, was telling them, he and his wife, that he wanted to be a soldier. And they were saying, oh, you know, you don't want to be a soldier. You know, we, we, we wouldn't want you to be, to, you know, to die in battle and to have to kill other people. And, and so he said, oh, okay, well, no, I don't want to die or kill and so he says, but I want to be then a fighter pilot. And so they said, oh, well, you also could be shot down if you're a fighter pilot. And plus you'd be bombing people that are way down below and killing lots of people. And so then um, this man told me, oh, well, then my son said, okay, well, then I want to be a pastor. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny. Anyway, um, so this man then told me, you know, how, um, well, I could see just how, he was so troubled by killing and um and it was i guess really encouraging to me um just to hear a ukrainian who was really against against the war and was just deeply troubled by uh you know the the ongoing you know conflict where russians are killing ukrainians ukrainians are killing russians and clearly he's living that tension in his own marriage and i myself told him about my upbringing where, um, you know, I had been, I grew up during the Cold War and I'd had lots of questions because I was aware of the, of the threat of nuclear war with Russia at that time, you know, in the sixties and, um, was always asking my parents, well, about the threat from the Soviet Union and my parents, um, the more that I would ask them, the more that they would tell me. And they were reading, um, a lot of literature and Solzhenitsyn and different people about you know, what was happening in Russia. And, and so they would tell me, well, I mean, I, I learned from them or the way that they had described it was that a lot of people were, uh, there was a campaign against Christians and that if you were um, a Christian that you could be separated from your family and um, you'd have to either renounce your faith or possibly go into a, a special, you know, home or, a, or an education facility where you'd be, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd you'd sort of get all that brainwashed out of you and 
And so, and you might be sent to Siberia, right? So, I mean, that's what I remember as a kid, that I could be sent to Siberia to a prison or to some kind of a re-education center if I didn't renounce my faith. So that was something that troubled me deeply. And this uh, Ukrainian guy said, oh, well, yes, I mean, that back in the day, that actually was a threat. And then I told him how, um, so uh, that I'd been invited by this Russian guy uh, three different times, a Russian man who became a Christian in our jail in, uh, you know, years ago, uh, maybe eight or nine years ago when he was 21. This man, Andre, invited me um, after he was deported back to Russia. He got involved in a ministry to addicts and people in these recovery houses in Siberia. And he talked to his bishop and they invited Gracie and I three different times to offer trainings to all of their leadership there. And we went from town to town and I told him how that's when I, I began to really, you know, really learn who these Russian, who the Russian people were in a, in a much deeper way. And as we were um, talking, um, my son noted that, that a lot of the Russians that were there were, seemed to be really delighted that um, the four of us that were there together, who were non-Russians, were having such a good time. And somehow that was seemed to amuse or just hearten the Russians who, you know, were, were, are proud of their sauna and, and of that aspect of their culture and seemed, um, you know, to be really warm towards us. And in a time when I think they must be feeling a lot of stress and tension and maybe anti-Russian sentiment, considering that, you know, the United States is arming their, um, you know, the Ukrainians that, and, and so many Russians are being killed um, with the weapons that we're supplying, you know, the, the Ukrainian um, military. And so, you know, um, there we were um, in some ways experiencing being um, carriers of light, but also being beneficiaries of the light that these two um, men, these Ukrainians were carrying, you know, and their generosity and their kindness towards us. And I find out that both of them were from a faith you know, Christian faith background, Baptist churches in Russia, and, and we're active in, you know, at least one of them, one of the two brothers, whose name was Andre, um, like this, like the fisherman here in Matthew, you know, four, um, was, um, you know, an active Christian in a faith community nearby. And so, you know, we experienced this, um, you know, this, uh, I think the, like a, a contemporary ex experience of, of bringing light and also being sort of embraced and um and I, I you know i had just a great final conversation with this uh you know with the the russian guy that you know gave me that um you know that sauna experience um about just uh just how you know violence is so abhorrent and how you know we need to be finding ways to promote peace you know rather than you know just the taking of of lives and you know, and he was greatly disturbed by, you know, just uh, his full knowledge that, you know, that Ukrainians were killing Russians who were just being recruited, who weren't just bad people. They were just uh, forcibly recruited into the Russian military. And um, anyway, so I just wanted to share that because I just believe there are many opportunities that are around us. And um, I would have never imagined that, that all those experiences would have happened yesterday afternoon an evening um, for me, right around, um, you know, the, the discoveries that we were making about um, Jesus's own, you know, beginnings in Galilee. So um, may God bless you and open your eyes to opportunities to, 
you know, proclaim, um, you know, this uh, message of repentance and the kingdom of God and to, and to be part of the recruiting movement um, to uh, recruit more agents of light. <laughs>